Thank you very much, Stephen. And I would like to thank the Ibn Arabi Society and the SOAS University for inviting me. The belief that Islamic philosophy ended with the death of Ibn Rushd in 1198 has been challenged. But some scholars still maintain that a certain Aristotelian philosophy ended with him partly because of the blow that Ghazali dealt to it in his book, The Destruction of the Philosophers. Contrary to what is generally believed, I think that Ibn Rushd conceived the threat that was posed to philosophy as coming primarily from Ghazali the Sufi and only secondarily from Ghazali the theologian. Ghazali's book, The Destruction of the Philosophers, targeted Ibn Sina's philosophy and by responding to Ghazali's arguments, Ibn Rushd was capitalizing on the opportunity to cleanse philosophy from Ibn Sina's misleading ideas, or what he conceived as mis uh, his misle misleading ideas. The real threat to philosophy came not from Ghazali's destruction of the philosophers, but from his the revival of the religious sciences, and the Sufi method which he articulated in that book. In the revival, Ghazali introduces two examples to explain the difference between the action of the speculative philosophers who labor to acquire knowledge itself and gather it into the heart and that of the Sufi saints who labor to the end of purifying the heart. I will quote his second example which tells the story of an encounter between the folk of the Byzantine Greeks and the Chinese. The Greeks represent in the story the speculative philosophers who rely on acquiring rational knowledge, and the Chinese represent the Sufi saints who rely on divine inspiration and unveiling. I should indicate before quoting his words that the same story told here was told by Ibn al-Arabi, although Ibn al-Arabi did not indicate Ghazali as the source from which he derived his version of the story. Ghazali says, The story is told that once the Chinese and the Greeks vied with one another before a certain king as to the beauty of their work of decorating and painting. So the king decided to give over to them a portico so that the Chinese might decorate the side of it, one side of it, and the Greeks the other side, and hang down a curtain between them so as to prevent either group from looking at the other. The Greeks gathered together numberless strange colors, but the Chinese entered without any color at all, and began polishing their side. When the Greeks had finished, the Chinese stated that they had finished also. The king was astonished at their statement and the manner in which they had finished the decorating without any color at all. When the Chinese were asked about the manner in which they finished the work without colors, they lifted the veil and on their side there shone forth the wonders of the skills of the Greeks with added illumination and dazzling brilliance, because that side had become like unto a polished mirror by reason of much furbishing. Ghazali says that the work of the Chinese symbolizes the care of the saints in purifying and polishing the heart until the true nature of the reality shines forth upon it, while the work of the Greeks symbolizes the care of the philosophers in acquiring knowledge 
and representing what they have acquired in the heart. Ghazali explains further that the real nature of the world can be represented either by being drawn from the senses and the rational images that the heart derives from the sensible reality, or from the preserved tablet, Allawh al-Mahfud, in which the real knowledge of the world is stored. Whenever the veils of sense perception and rational representation are lifted between the heart and the preserved tablet, the heart sees the things that are stored in it, in the preserved tablet, and knowledge bursts forth in it so that it does not have to acquire knowledge through the avenues of sense perception and concept formation. In the following passage from the exposition of the methods, Al-Kashf al-Manahij al-Adilla, Ibn Rushd presents his rationale for rejecting the Sufi method as articulated by Ghazali. Ibn Rushd says, As for the Sufis, their methods are not methods of rational demonstration, which consist of premises and syllogisms. They maintain that knowledge of God and of his existence is something that is cast into the soul upon purifying it from the desires. We say that this method, even if we admit its existence, is not common to human beings. Were this method the method intended for the human being, the method of rational consideration would be obsolete. However, all of the Qur'an is but an invitation to the method of rational consideration. Yes, suppressing the desires is a condition for the soundness of rational consideration, as physical health is a condition for it, but it is not what provides knowledge itself. What does Ibn Rushd mean by saying that the Sufi method is not a proper method for acquiring rational knowledge, even if we admit its existence. Those who are familiar with his thought would probably say that the words, even if we admit its existence, are just a meaningless supposition and do not amount to a real affirmation of the validity of the Sufi method. The question concerning Ibn Rushd's affirmation of the Sufi method, however, proves to be complex. Readers of Ibn al-Arabi must be familiar with the account that he provides of his encounters with Ibn Rushd. Ibn al-Arabi says that Ibn Rushd desired to see him because of what he heard concerning the results of his mystical retreat. Ibn Rushd asked Ibn al-Arabi, How have you found the matter through divine unveiling? Is it the same as what rational consideration has given us? Ibn al-Arabi said, Yes, no. Between yes and no, spirits fly from their matters and necks from their bodies. He says that Ibn Rushd was greatly troubled by his answer and that later he desired to have another meeting with him, after which he thanked God that he lived at such a time to see one who entered his retreat as ignorant and emerged as Ibn al-Arabi had emerged without study or rational investigation. He, Ibn Rushd, said, <clears throat> We have affirmed the state, but we have never seen anyone who mastered it. Praise be to God that I lived in a time where I could see one of its masters. 
Is it possible that Ibn al-Arabi is making here a reference to Ibn Rushd's statement in exposition of the methods that even if we admit the existence of the Sufi method, it is still not a proper method for acquiring rational knowledge? Scholars insist that the affirmation of the Sufi state cannot be substantiated in Ibn Rushd and that in his report of his encounters with Ibn Rushd, Ibn al-Arabi was simply carried away by his fertile imagination. In Epistle on the Possibility of Conjunction with the Active Intellect, which was preserved in Hebrew translation, Ibn Rushd discusses the conditions for achieving the state of intellectual perfection, which is related to the problem of the conjunction or the union between the human and the divine intellects which Aristotle promised to discuss in his book on the soul, but never did. Aristotle says about the problem only one sentence. Ibn Rushd discusses it in hundreds of pages. Ibn Rushd says, The question whether it is possible that this state be attained by an individual without study requires considerate investigation. As he proceeds in his investigation, Ibn Rushd addresses another problem, another question, which is, why is it that we do not form a conception of the active intellect from the outset? Since, as some claim, there is no necessity for superfluous formation of concepts. It turns out that the two questions were closely related to what Ibn Rushd considered as the Sufi challenge to his concept of conjunction with the divine intellect. His treatment of the two questions in which he mentions the Sufis explicitly and Ghazali implicitly clearly shows that this challenge was haunting his mind as it haunted the mind of Ibn Bajah, his predecessor. Ibn Rushd provides his most innovative discussion of conjunction in his long commentary on Aristotle's On the Soul. Here he does not mention the Sufis explicitly but the question, why do we not conceive the active intellect from the outset, turns out to be one of the crucial questions of his discussion. From his discussion, it becomes clear that the Sufi challenge proved to be a serious threat to him because of internal considerations that are related to his reception of Aristotle's theory of knowledge. The problem is the following. On the one hand, Ibn Rushd thought that the human intellect cannot think without the concept, which it abstracts from the mental images, which it draws from the sensible reality. On the other hand, he thought that to achieve conjunction with the active intellect, the human intellect must be emptied from all imaginal and rational forms. Indeed, the acquired intellect must be completely obliterated for conjunction to occur. These, Ibn Rushd believed, were Aristotelian principles. It follows that conjunction with the active intellect cannot occur in this life, because in this life or world we cannot acquire knowledge of things that are separate from physical reality. Conjunction must therefore occur in the afterlife. You will not find any talk about the afterlife in Aristotle. Thus, Ibn Rushd's theory of conjunction, which was set in opposition to that of Ibn Bajah, who thought that we can acquire conjunction in this life, could not be supported by Aristotle himself. 
but it had support in the religious belief in the afterlife. It remains to be said in what manner Ibn Rushd would interpret the religious relief in the afterlife or the otherworldly reality. But it seems clear to me that apart from it, in his solution of the problem of conjunction could not be substantiated. The Sufis, however, even centuries before Ibn Rushd, were talking about taking off the two shoes of this life and the afterlife, what is called Khala'in Alayn. Knowledge which does not lead to connection with the divine in the present timeless state was not real knowledge for them, and the taking off of the two shoes of this life and the afterlife was a necessary condition for this connection. Ibn Rushd was fighting, it seems, against two fronts at the same time. He was fighting against the rationalist Ibn Baja, who believed that we can achieve conjunction in this life, and at the same time against the Sufis, who thought that by polishing the mirror of the heart, we can attain connection with the divine in this present timeless state. He needed so badly the option of the afterlife to win the fight, and for him the religious option was a matter of the life or death of philosophy. There are some indications in Ibn al-Arabi that he was aware of this. For example, right before telling the story of his encounter with Ibn Rushd, Ibn al-Arabi says, The reality is the reality and the way is the way. This life and the afterlife share the same materials and the same structure, although the one is made of clay and straw and the other of gold and silver. Then Ibn al-Arabi begins telling the story of his encounter with Ibn Rushd. As he says, when Ibn Rushd asked him about the harmony between philosophy and Sufism, he, Ibn al-Arabi, responded by saying, yes, no. Between yes and no, spirits fly from their bodies. And he says that, upon hearing his words, Ibn Rushd was seized with trembling and filled to repeating the words, there is no power and there is no strength but in God, because he understood his, Ibn al-Arabi's, implicit reference to the relationship between this life and the afterlife. The Arabic version of Ibn Rushd's epistle on conjunction was lost. Also, the Arabic version of his long commentary on Aristotle's book on the soul was lost. But the commentary, his long commentary, was preserved in Latin translation. And it was in the Latin Christian world that it exercised its greatest importance or influence. Also, as scholars have indicated, Ibn Rushd did not have much of an impact on subsequent Islamic philosophy. It will be, of course, be hasty to draw far-reaching conclusions on the basis of these simple facts. Also, it is a fact that some aspects of Ibn Rushd's theory of the intellect had come under serious attack by Latin thinkers. I still believe, however, that the consideration of what has been said concerning the relevance of the religious factor to Ibn Rushd's view of conjunction and his view of the Sufi method may give rise to some interesting speculations concerning the subsequent reception of his thought. <clears throat> In 19... In 1194, four years before the death of Ibn Rushd, 
Ibn al-Arabi visited Shaykh Abdul Aziz al-Mahdawi in Tunis. After his return to Andalusia, he composed for him his book, The Contemplations of the Divine Mysteries, translated to English by Celia Twinch and Pablo Benito, which consists of 14 visionary conversations. In the last section of Contemplations, Ibn al-Arabi speaks of the philosophers. He says the following, And there was a call saying, Where are those who claim to possess reason? Then the philosophers and their followers were brought before him, and they were questioned, To what have you applied your intellects? They said, To what pleases you? He said, And how do you know that? Through pure reason or through following and imitating me? They said, through pure reason. He said, then you have not reasoned and you have not succeeded, but you passed your own judgment. Let the fire pass judgment on them. And I heard their cries of woe from the layers of fire. I said, who is tormenting them? He said to me, their intellect, since that is what they worshipped. None questioned them except themselves and none punished them except themselves. Notice that Ibn al-Arabi says that none will question the philosophers and none will punish them except themselves, meaning their own intellects. Because as we know from reading Ibn Rushd, the philosopher's ideal was to turn his self into pure reason. Then the philosopher will be judged by the very ideality which he worshipped. The outcome is infinite torment. Because reason not only judges, but also judges its judgment and its judgment of its judgment ad infinitum. It is true that reason can be receptive, but it can also be inherently skeptical. Worshipping it in that state means subjecting oneself to an infinite process of skeptical questioning. Even if a person can become critical, even if the reason if reason can become critical of its own self. In the case of the philosophers Ibn al-Arabi is thinking about, this never amounts to a radical critique, which requires a step that philosophers cannot take as long as they do not transcend the level of intellect. More importantly, one will make a mistake to think that purifying the soul, as the Chinese had done in Ghazali's story, is a sufficient, although necessary, condition for this transcendence. The problem is that rational purification remains itself a veil. Indeed, according to both Ghazali and Ibn al-Arabi, the greatest veil, because it is a veil so transparent that it cannot even be seen. Hence, it should be clear that the Sufi cannot be a skeptic of the type of a David Hume, the author of a treatise of the human nature, or an Immanuel Kant, the author of the critique of pure reason, who said that it was Hume's skepticism which aroused him from his dogmatic slumber, or of any critique, of any type of critique that followed theirs, as long as it remained subject to skeptical purification. I'm not sure what would Ibn al-Arabi's characterization of the reality of our modern and postmodern intellectuality would be like, but I have the feeling that he would find the words of Martin Heidegger who said, 
questioning is the piety of philosophical thought, amusing. When in the East, years after writing his contemplations, Ibn al-Arabi heard a story about Fakhreddin al-Razi, the famous theologian philosopher. He was so moved by the story that he decided to write al-Razi a letter in which he says, I have been told by one of your brothers that he saw you weeping one day and asked you about it. You said, For thirty years I have maintained a certain intellectual position, but I have realized by decisive proof that the truth of the matter is contrary to what I believed. So I cried and said, Perhaps then what has been revealed to me is just what I had before. This is your saying. And you should know that it is impossible for the possessor of rational reflection to be at rest, especially when it comes to knowledge of God. So why my brother remain entrapped in this predicament and not enter the path of spiritual purification? Could it be that Ibn al-Arabi's word, words exerted some influence on Ar-Razi? In the introduction to his probably last book, Al-Matalib al-Aliyah, Arazi states that there are two ways of acquiring knowledge of God, the way of the philosophers and the way of spiritual purification of the Sufis. In describing the second way, Razi's expression resembles that of an accomplished Sufi. But then, and except for its introduction, his work consists of the one big collection of logical proofs of in the middle of which we hear him saying, Know that proofs can be decisive and can be persuasive, and that acquiring much of the persuasive proofs may yield decisive proof. And this is confirmed by the master of logic Aristotle. It seems that Ibn al-Arabi's message did not go through after all. Shortly after the death of Ibn Rushd, Ibn al-Arabi departed from Andalusia to the east, where he commenced writing of his major work, Al-Futuhat al-Makiyya. This is what he says in the opening line of its introduction. <clears throat> and it may have occurred to me to begin this book by writing a chapter on doctrinal matters, employing decisive indications and shining proofs, Adilla qata'a wa barahin sati'a. But then I realized that that would distract the one who has prepared himself for more and opened himself to receiving the gifts of generosity and the mysteries of finding wujud. His words are somewhat puzzling because on several occasions Ibn al-Arabi emphasizes that everything that he writes comes as a result of divine inspiration and not of personal deliberation. So what does he mean by saying that it may have occurred to him to write by employing decisive proofs? Somehow Ibn al-Arabi wants to indicate how tempting the urge to have recourse to rational form of, of exposition could be. But he makes it clear that he was able to resist the temptation and also indicates what rationale stood behind that resistance. Namely that he was writing for a reader who has prepared himself for receiving more. This is because decisive proofs seem to lead to certainty as the word decisive, qata'a, implies. 
The word qati'a, uh, however, literally means having the property of cutting off. Readers who wish to be convinced by the truth of by the truth that the writer of a book is stating may take his decisive demonstrated peace of mind, his proof, and go away happy with what they have received. The problem begins when they happen to receive another such a demonstrated peace of mind, sometimes another whole philosophy, sometimes by another writer, and sometimes by the same writer, and realize that what they received before had become a dead product rather than a living philosophy, as it happened in Razi's case. When this process repeats itself, it yields alienation. When alienation is combined with lack of faith in any source of inspiration, this yields extremes form, extreme forms of skepticism. In itself, skepticism is not a bad thing. As Ghazali says, he says, he who does not doubt does not look, and he who does not look does not see, and he who does not see remains in the darkness. In fact, Ibn al-Arabi states that among the rational thinkers, the skeptics have come closest to, to Sufi realization. However, he says, the difference between us and them is that they say that all this has no reality, but we do not say that. Hence, it was important for Ibn al-Arabi to introduce his Futuhat in the manner he did, indicating on the one hand his reluctance to conduct his writing in the form of rational argument, but on the other hand alluding to the fact that he was not in opposition to rational argument as such, only to the possibility of distraction that it may create. Ibn al-Arabi proceeds by dividing knowledge into three kinds, knowledge of the intellect, knowledge of the mystical states, al-ahwal, which is intermediate between knowledge of the intellect and the highest kind of knowledge, which is knowledge of the mysteries, al-asrar, possessed by prophets and saints. He insists that both knowledge of the mystical states and knowledge of the mysteries are beyond intellectual knowledge. Notice what he says concerning the philosophers in the context of describing the knowledge of the mysteries. He says, Do not let yourself be turned off when you come across one of the matters of this prophetic knowledge, knowledge of the mysteries, and say that the Sufi who discusses this matter is a philosopher only because the philosopher mentioned that matter, or that the Sufi has no religion only because the philosopher who mentioned it had no religion. Do not do that, because not all of the philosopher's knowledge is untrue. And this matter might be among the truths that the philosopher has, especially if the prophets had maintained it. We must uphold the philosopher's statement with regard to that matter and acknowledge it to be true. Ibn al-Arabi is making this statement in the introduction to the Futuhat, and he is making it in the context of discussing the knowledge of the prophets and the saints. This means that the reader should expect to find discussions of philosophical subjects in the book and he should not be surprised to find harmony between the view of the Sufis on some of these subjects and the views of the philosophers. This does not mean that Ibn al-Arabi has relinquished his critical view of the philosophers. It only means that he has in mind not one but two different concepts of philosophy as he has in mind two different concepts of religion. 
Let us see how this relates to what he says in the following passage from a much later chapter of the Futuhat. He says, It is rare that one of the folk of rational consideration does have a taste of mystical knowledge, such as Plato among the philosophers, since we find his breath proceeding from the same place as the breath of the folk of unveiling. Muslims hate him because of his relation to philosophy and because of their ignorance of the meaning of this word. The wise, in truth, are those who possess knowledge of God and of all things. Wisdom is the science of prophethood, and philosopher means lover of wisdom, because Sophia in the Greek tongue means wisdom, and Phil is love. So philosophy is love of wisdom, and every rational person loves wisdom. However, the folk of reflection are more incorrect concerning divine matters than they are correct whether they are philosophers or Mu'tazilites or Ash'arites. It is because of that that Muslims, meaning himself in this case, hate them, not merely because of their name. What we have here is not the usual attempt made by Islamic intellectuals to establish harmony between philosophy and religion, but more like a reconstruction of both at a higher conceptual level. In fact, it was Ghazali who actually started this kind of reconstruction. It is true that Ibn al-Arabi says that Ghazali was not able to attain the highest level of the knowledge of sainthood because he made rational investigation his starting point and because of the heavy load of skepticism that was laid on his shoulders and that prevented him from soaring higher. In which case, Plato remains for Ibn al-Arabi a very unusual case of a rational thinker who attained the highest forms of mystical knowledge. It becomes clear, however, from an early work which Ibn al-Arabi composed in Andalusia that he saw himself as the one who was chosen to complete the task that Ghazali had begun, which was the task of reviving the religious sciences on philosophical basis. Having witnessed Ibn Rushd's persecution in the Islamic West, Ibn, Rushd, Ibn al-Arabi had made up his mind that Andalusia was no dwelling place for a free thinker. The Sufi East that he arrived at seems to have recovered from the dire consequences of Halaj's execution, which had cast a long melancholic shadow on the Sufi tradition. However, this seems to have been achieved at least partly at the expense of philosophy and rational theology. Ibn al-Arabi was no doubt affected by the tendency towards anti-rationalism which was growing in Islamic intellectuality and some traces of this tendency can be found in his own writings. However, when we carefully examine his attitude toward rational theology and philosophy, we find that it can hardly be described as dogmatic and that the key to understanding it is related to his quest for perfection and the difference that he sees between perfection and knowledge which keeps it open-ended and its completion which implies its delimitation. To explain what this means in relation to philosophy, we may consider certain statements by Ibn Rushd from which we learn that for Ibn Rushd, philosophy consists of a limited body of truths such that it will be possible for one person endowed with special intellectual capacities such as Aristotle 
to found and complete. We also learn that according to Ibn Rushd, philosophy begins to the class of generated corrupted professions or arts, and that it circulates in every nation of the human species until its limited body of truth is comprehended by that nation, and then it is transmitted to another nation, which is how it endures infinitely, despite its being generated and corrupted. It is not hard to see in what sense Ibn al-Arabi would be reluctant to situating philosophy in such a limited sitting. For him, philosophy cannot be detached from the direct intervention of the real, al-Haq, in the life of the human being, who is the locus of the manifestation of truth, not its author or source. The philosopher is a divine messenger, and even as the divine messenger delivers his message in the context of human society, he will be delivering it specifically to those, to those who are potential philosophers' mystics. No doubt Ibn Rushd would reflect on this specification as an act of non-rational discrimination. As we learn from Ibn al-Arabi, however, the, the mission of the philosopher mystic turns out to be extremely complex. This is because to deliver the message, the philosopher mystic must be able to identify potential philosopher's mystics, which means that he must acquire the kind of rational knowledge which enables him to determine the intellectual position of each person and his specific level in relation to mystical perfection. This is why Ibn al-Arabi emphasizes in his book Contemplations of the Holy Mysteries the great importance of what he calls the return, a rujua, of the mystic to the world to fulfill the function of guiding others. The examination of this book, the Contemplations of the Holy Mysteries, shows its close resemblance in both form and content to the work of the 10th century Sufi mystic Nifri, whose influence on Ibn al-Arabi was matched only by Ghazali's. As it becomes clear from his prologue to his contemplations, however, Ibn al-Arabi thought that he was taking an important step beyond the Nifri with his emphasis on the importance of the return of the mystic to the world. In his commentary on Nifri's work, Afif al-Din Tlimsani, who was drawing on Ibn al-Arabi's teaching, explicates Ibn al-Arabi's notion of the return. Tlimsani discusses four stages of the mystical journey, two of which he relates to this notion of the return. About the time of Tlimsani's death, about 1290, the Baghdadi Sit al-Ajam bint al-Nafis completed a comprehensive a comprehensive commentary on Ibn al-Arabi's Book of Contemplations in which she provides a brilliant account of the four stages of the mystical journey. Another detailed account of the mystical journey and the four stages was provided by another follower of Ibn al-Arabi's school, Sa'd al-Din al-Farghani. While it is true that these and other followers of Ibn al-Arabi held that the philosophers fell short of completing the first stage of the mystical journey, it is also true that it was Ibn al-Arabi's and before him Ghazali's tremendous efforts to merge philosophy with mysticism 
that opened the way for establishing this new and vast body of knowledge which may be called the science of the four stages of the philosophical mystical journey. There is much more to be said about this science and its relationship to the development of later Islamic intellectual tradition, but this extends beyond the limits of this presentation. Instead, I wish to conclude by saying the following. Probably you have heard of what is called the notion of the unity of being, Wahdat al-Wujud, which is thought of as the culmination of the mystical experience as depicted by Ibn al-Arabi. As a matter of fact, this notion is only the culmination of the first of the four stages of the mystical journey as depicted by Ibn al-Arabi's followers. Also, I do think that some of our Western philosophers were able to contemplate the notion of the unity of being even without being aware that they were given the possibility of engaging in a mystical journey which for some complicated reasons they were not eager to pursue. Perhaps the following words which Heidegger said in 1966 provide an indication as to why this was the case. Those who have better knowledge of Heidegger will surely find a way to render his words less problematic than they sound. With my limited knowledge, however, I'll quote his words without commenting on them. He says, The conversion of thought cannot happen by taking over some Buddhism or other Eastern experiences of the world. For this conversion of thought, we need the help of the European tradition and a new appropriation of it. Thought will be transformed only through thought that has the same European origin and determination. Thank you so much.